Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. With Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us again, our colleague, Chris Murphy. Hi. Thanks for having me back so soon. Oh, I'm so Chris. <laughs> it, is, it is our pleasure, especially because you are the first guest in what is going to be a, an upcoming miniseries of our Oscar flashbacks, which you might remember we did last year as uh, movies stopped being released and we needed things to talk about. So uh, last summer we went back and looked at a whole lot of uh, old classic Oscar-adjacent movies. We're doing it again. We're inviting our coworkers to come back and pick movies that mean something to them in terms of uh, following the Oscars or uh, being mad about the Oscars. And Chris, you picked 2002 Best Picture winner Chicago, which we all got the chance to rewatch for the first time in however long. Um, (laughs) So we're excited to talk about Chicago. Uh, We'll have two interviews in the back half of this episode. I talked to Kathleen Turner about reuniting with Michael Douglas on the final season of The Kaminsky Method. And I'll talk a little bit more about all of my feelings about The Kaminsky Method, which I never thought I would have, but I do. Um, And Hilary Busis, another one of our uh, colleagues who appears on the show from time to time, talked to Renee Elise Goldsberry about playing Wiki on Girls 5 Eva which I think we have not talked enough about on this show, but um, I believe is a beloved favorite of all of us. Um, And I'm excited to get to feature it. Uh, But first, we want to talk about a little bit of news and new releases that are coming out. And Joanna, just before we started recording, the nominations for the Daytime Emmy Awards came out, which I would say are not usually high on my priority list of awards things to cover, but they got my attention and they got yours. And uh, do you want to explain why? Yeah, there are a couple streaming shows nominated for daytime Emmys. And our friend of the show, Joe Reed, tweeted out about this saying like, <laughs> uh, so so specifically, uh, Julian the Phantoms, Trinkets uh, from Netflix, Dash and Lily from Netflix, and then a, an Amazon series that I had not heard of called Studio City. And um, Joe tweeted something like, what makes these shows daytime shows? And then he tweeted a follow-up, what makes anything else on Netflix a, a primetime show? Um, <laughs> so a real, a real uh, crossroads here, a real question mark. I will say at least, at the very least, I was looking at this Amazon show, Studio City, which I had not heard of. And at least that is like 
a, a soap opera starring a bunch of soap opera actors that I recognize. Amazon like, has a soap opera? Yeah, it's a digital soap hospital show. Uh, AJ Quartermain from General Hospital is on there. Uh, so, I mean, the, he an actor who played AJ Quartermain. Shout out to General Hospital fans. Anyway, at least that has the decency of being a soap. But I don't understand what Dash and Lily or Julian the Phantoms, which are like YA programming. So maybe they think that like YA programming belongs on daytime. I don't know. What Dash you- and Lily. Dash and Lily is a Christmas television yes. show. And I watched all of it like one night from like 10 p.m. to like 4 a.m. So I absolutely don't consider it daytime television program. <laughs> Some of that but was technically in the morning, Chris. So, okay, you that know. is true. The, the wee hours of the morning, that is fair. But I'm really struggling with that one. Yeah, it, It's my understanding that I think around 2013, the daytime Emmy started including streaming stuff. Okay. And it's pretty early you, for the streaming wars. Yeah, right? but you can't really put a border around it, which is what you and Joe were getting at, Joanna. Is like, I, I guess people watch it in the daytime. I don't know. It just feels like these categories are going to start to have to be, or these two different ceremonies between primetime Emmys and daytime Emmys. There might start to be some weird, like blurry questions if there weren't already. I think to that end, another interesting thing I saw on the list of nominees was in the outstanding entertainment talk show host, Sean Evans from the YouTube series Hot Ones, where celebrities eat hot wings while he a, interviews them, was, nom- was nominated. Show. A great show. <laughs> and it's a great nomination because he's a really good interviewer. People, people, guests always like praise him for making them feel comfortable, for asking good questions while doing this kind of silly stunt. So that's like a YouTube show. like, And I think that's, and that's what technically is a streaming show, but it's just, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that stuff like that can break through at the daytime Emmys and there have been, you know, webisodes and all that stuff recognized at primetime. But like, I don't know. It, it, it's interesting watching these awards bodies kind of adapt and actually like find things. I mean, hot ones, it's extremely popular, so it's not, they didn't have to look hard, but like to find things outside of the regular, you know, Kelly Ripa, et cetera, kind of lineup. Yeah. And I should say that uh, our colleague, David Canfield, who's our awards writer who joined this last week, won't be on the show soon, is looking into this because he also learned that there's a children's Emmys category where I think we'll see things like Dash and Lily maybe show up again. Also, the Babysitter's Club is on this list for costumes, and I loved that show. And if it only gets nominated for costumes, I'm going to be furious, but it seems like it could pop up again. Um and I don't want to be pedantic by talking about how weird the categories are because the Emmys have a million awards, even just in the primetime ones. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see what gets in there. But it does kind of get at what the blurry line between what is television and what is everything else, which is kind of what we talked about last week with Franklin Leonard. Um, and I was looking at the outstanding daytime nonfiction special category, which includes a Comedy Central comedy thing about called Call Your Mother, a Michelle Obama YouTube original, something about St. Patrick, like the actual St. Patrick, an electronic field trip digital release about the Manhattan Project, a Vimeo about the rise at Standing Rock, the Red Table Talk with Will Smith on it, which we all remember, and a Times Kid of the Year program from Nickelodeon. Now that is a collection of programming that we call television now. I love it. I hope Will Smith wins. (laughs) Yeah, that's an entanglement. That's absolutely an entanglement. If if Will Smith loses to the Manhattan Project, though, I mean, can can we be mad? I don't even know. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, and daytime Emmys isn't, isn't necessarily strictly, strictly date, you know, there's, um, game show host is in there, you know what I mean? Seven o'clock, I guess, is not quite primetime yet. Um, I don't know. Anyway, welcome to the wild and wonderful world of is Dash and Lily a daytime Netflix show? I have 
my doubts, but yeah. we shall see. I hope by next week, maybe uh, David will have come up with some answers. Maybe he can come on to bring us his findings. Um, and it's just the beginning of many months of uh, Emmy stuff to talk about. We can all go uh, watch the electronic field trip release about the Manhattan Project in the meantime. Um, okay, other breaking news, uh, which is that movies are back this weekend in theaters for real. Um, Cruella and A Quiet Place Part Two are both out this weekend, which is Memorial Day weekend. Um, it does seem to be kind of like the great hope of theater change that people will actually show up to see these, even though Cruella is on, um, what are they calling it, premium Disney VOD? Disney, what is it called? Disney Access? Disney Plus Plus? <laughs> yeah. Disney Triple A Plus. Congratulations, Cruella. Disney um, Times, you know, no, so it's like, you, it's an exponential amount. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard, you've seen both. Uh, and as our mm-hmm. as our critic, you should uh, just be the one to explain it to us. Is Are these going to be the movies that save movie going? Uh, I think Quiet Place Part 2 ought to do pretty well. You know, it's a known entity and that the sequel, the, the, the movie that it's a sequel to was a big hit. It had Oscar buzz. We do remember that Emily Blunt won best supporting actress at the SAGs for it. Hell yeah. Uh, when Regina King a, wasn't even nominated. A, <laughs> wow. It got a bunch of guild nominations, I think for screenplay and something else. So it was like quiet place was not only a huge box office hit. That was an organic, like not based on anything kind of thing. I don't think it was based on anything anyway. It also got awards attention. So, of course, there is a sequel, once again written and or co-written and directed by John Krasinski, starring his wife, Emily Blunt. There is enough of the same that people will be satisfied. It does expand the world of A Quiet Place, the Quiet Place universe, uh, in some directions that, you know, we're talking about aliens who can who uh, hunt by sound. So like we're, we're not in the realm of the believable exactly, but like there is stuff that strains credulity even more uh, in the sequel um, while they kind of repeat uh, as you know, a lot of sequels do just kind of the, the, the moments from the first one. It's a fine movie, but fine. That's competently and, you know, and actually well-made in parts uh, might just be, that's enough. You know, it'll, it'll make its money. People will go see it. It'll, they'll, you know, be scared and, have a good time and tell their friends to go do the same. And it's the kind of thing that like if you watch it at home, which you do not have the option for, right? There's no there's no at home option for this one. But like the whole experience is what you get in a theater and nowhere else. Yeah, it's a very, you know, it's definitely one of those movies where, it, yeah, you kind of want to treat it like an event and, 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 and share in the tension and reaction in the audience. You know, and we've seen there have been mo- a few movies thus far where that you know, they've made a bet that people actually do want to go back to the theaters and it has panned out to some extent. I think another big one in, although that's also going to be on HBO Max, is Conjuring 3 or Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It. Horror is such a communal experience for a lot of people. That's half the fun. Is screaming alongside a bunch of strangers. Quiet Place Part 2 is not quite as scary as that. It's more of a thriller. But like, yeah, I would I would assume that it'll it'll post some good numbers over the holiday weekend. Is Emily Blunt going to repeat her sad win, you think? Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Um, without spoiling much, she's in the whole movie. It's not, you know, it's not a cameo by any means. But um, the movie is more focused on um, the actress who plays their daughter, Millicent Simmons, I believe her name is, um, who first came about in uh, the Todd Haynes movie, Wonderstruck. Um, she's a deaf actor. Um, a lot of the movie, the first movies, you know, sort of stylistic 
the way it differentiated itself was dealing with like the idea of sound and those who, you know, like her, Millicent Simmons' character, like uh, can't hear it really without the aid of uh, hearing aids, you know. So this one does more of that and really moves her kind of into the protagonist role in a bigger way. I still think something about the metaphor or whatever the movie's doing with that doesn't quite add up to me, but she's really good. She's a really good actor in it. I mean, she's a good actor in general. She's really good in it. Blunt is great. Noah Jupe, uh, a podcast <laughs> favorite. Yes. Yes. Right. Jupe it up. Jupe, there it is. The undoing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, and then we have Killian Murphy joining the cast. Uh, the Mary Sue has a headline that reads, The Quiet Place Part 2 features Thirst Trap Killian Murphy. Can you confirm Richard Lawson? <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, I mean, he's, this is great. He looks great. And like, he, at first he's kind of scruffy, but then you're like, you settle back into it. And you're like, oh, there's Killian Murphy. Yeah. Oh, there you are. I'm really excited for the, for the QPEU, The Quiet Place Extended Universe. Um, <laughs> bring it on to me. I'm, I'm thrilled. Joop in the coop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, we'll see. Um, I feel less sanguine about Cruella uh, being the thing that helps save the box office. Uh, yeah. Yes. Why, why? Why don't we love Cruella? She loves those dogs making it's them into coats. Two hours Apparently and she's... thirteen minutes long, Katie. That's that's the main <laughs> that's the main problem with Cruella because I genuinely believe there is a fun movie in that movie somewhere. Smothered in that movie is a fun movie. Like the first. First 15 minutes of that movie, I was kind of like, I had a lot of question marks around my head. And then we settle into like, you know, because it starts with like a younger actress and then it becomes Emma Stone. And Emma Stone, like initially I was like, I'm here. I'm, I mean, I don't know how Richard feels, but I was like, I was here for it. I was ready for it. Um, It's a beautifully styled film um, because the costume designer is um, Jenny, I think it's Bevan or maybe Bevan. And I apologize because I talked to her. So I apologize if I'm mispronouncing (laughs) her name. But, you know, she won an Oscar for Mad Max Fury Road and has done a bunch of beautiful costume dramas. uh, And she just like brought everything to the gorgeous costumes of this and the two Emmas. Uh, Emma Thompson, Emma Stone seem to be having a lot of fun, but it is so long and there's so many tortured like twists and turns of the narrative as a result that it just loses the sort of, I think, fun energy around it. I will shout out Paul Walterhauser and um, Joel Fry, who play Cruella's like henchmen from the cartoon, but they're like sort of more of her found family in this film. I actually loved them in this movie. I loved them. I loved everything with them. I thought they were fantastic. Joel Fry, especially, it was like kind of this soulful turn on Jasper, <laughs> the uh, the Cruella henchman uh, that I really loved. But yeah, it just, it's just it's it's drowning in in bloat. Uh, Richard, what did you think of Cruella? Well, you know. I think if you're trying to be a villain origin story that humanizes them, but also about the birth of punk in 1970s London, but also Devil Wears Prada, but also a heist movie, maybe you do have to be two hours and 13 minutes long. (laughs) I would argue that you just shouldn't be trying to do all those things in one movie. Correct. Um, It feels incredibly cynical, the whole thing. It's trying to be edgy, but, but in a very safe Disney way. I think that they've completely... You know, I, I rewatched some of the animated original and some of the Glenn Close 96 film just to kind of, because 101 Dalmatians was never a big thing in like my childhood. So I, I'm not that familiar with the with the the property. Um, the iconography. Yeah. And like, she's so fun, but like, she's fun because she's just kind of bad. 
and just wants to wear those fucking dogs on her, you know, like, like that's her yeah. whole thing. <laughs> I agree. And like, I don't need to have a tragic backstory where she's actually kind of an, a cool iconoclast who like fights against the hegemony of like a crusty other fashion designer played by Emma Thompson. It just feels so strained and exhausting. It's not the actor's fault. It's certainly not the costume's fault. I put a lot of the onus on Craig Gillespie, who like he did in I, Tanya, which you all know I despise. Uh, he <gasps> layers on every single frame has a different needle drop of some song from the 60s or 70s it is utterly exhausting eat 20 minutes and you're like it's i'm done with this so movie. <laughs> bad the music like i was uh, someone hyped someone who had seen it already hyped the music for me so i thought it was gonna be a really cool like but it's just uh a friend of me once described the uh, the soundtrack to, to the first suicide squad as uh fedora's introductory guide to a playlist like that's what this oh. the, and that's like it's like a bowler hats introductory guide to a playlist is what cruella is i was like pick something more interesting uh yeah um, um yeah anyway uh i agree with you richard i think i think but do you agree with me that like maybe if it hadn't been cruella and it was just a fun movie about emma stone and emma thompson going to war with fashion and heists in 60s London that that could have been a fun movie somewhere absolutely and that feels yeah. like the movie that Gillespie wanted and the screenwriters wanted to make yeah but then all the Disney backstory origin stories feels grafted on but then has to kind of end the movie because that's what it's about right and like it yeah and I mean I really just to go quickly back to the song things I think within a span of 10 minutes Gillespie has played time of the season and Nina Simone's feeling good, which it's like, come, you, okay, oh, you, get, like you get one or the other. You can. Or uh, maybe neither. And, and she's like a rainbow. The Rolling Stones song is like minutes prior. Like it's really crazy. <laughs> That's a bowler hat on a bowler hat. That's <laughs> pretty insane. Yeah. I like 101 Dalmatians. Honestly, Glenn Close's performance in that scared me to such a visceral degree that I woke my father up, I was I think 10 or something, woke him up in the middle of the night and made him throw out the VHS <gasps> into the trash where I could see it. Because her performance was so terrifying and iconic. So it is kind of sad. <laughs> um, and I love Emma Stone. I, like, I'm honestly an Emma Stone apologist. Like I think she's a really wonderful actor. So it's, it's sad to hear that it, she seems to have gotten bogged down by the film. But even just, like, the the red carpet photos of it all, with, like, comparing Glenn Close on the red carpet, there was a meme that was going on uh, around that had, like, Glenn Close, like, in full Cruella, like, you know, drag, you know, crawling her way through the red carpet. And then Emma Stone in just, like, a nice black pantsuit, which, like, <laughs> I don't know. It feels like it's missing the camp edge and the sort of the over-the-top sort of zany, just, like, wicked-to-be-wicked um, feel of the first one. So it's like, why, then why are we doing it at all? Then what's the point? <laughs> well, exactly, Chris. And I think, I, I think the problem is, is that this movie is trying to be cool. And the 96 mm. film is not trying to be cool. It's trying to be fun and fabulous and over the top. And it succeeds on those things, mostly because of Glenn Close, no shade to Jeff Daniels and uh, Julie Richardson. Uh, but yeah, this one is trying to be like, this ain't your granddaddy's 101 right, so donations. Also, I mean, it's it's sweatily setting up a second movie. Roger and Anita are here, but shouldn't be because they're inconsequential. So they just feel like even more things sort of shoved shoved in and added onto here. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I could stop kicking this thing when it's down. But like, I just... Um, 
I get more frustrated by a good movie buried inside a bad movie than I do just something that's bad end to end. So I'm frustrated mm-hmm. because I do think there is something really, really fun in here um, that got just uh, smothered. Too many puppies. I-, I imagine some gay tweens and teens will love it, which might be all that matters. Honestly, I assume it's selling out a hot topic already. The costumes <laughs> genuinely are incredible, and um, and I think it, you know, I I actually wouldn't be surprised if we wind up talking about this come Oscars. I think it's hard to beat the sheer tonnage of gowns in this film and 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 the the fashion is used as like weaponry uh between these two women and so it's just like i i can't imagine beating it i don't know I well, it's early just, but I, I was literally just thinking like will it be free on disney plus by the time the oscars and then i can see it uh so i <laughs> had my mind on that yeah uh, just speaking of Paul Walter Hauser uh, and Joanna Ridge, you might know where I'm going with this. I want to point everyone to Taryn Edgerton's Instagram. Speaking of people we love to talk about oh, on this no. podcast, <laughs> he and Paul Walter Hauser are making a movie together, or no, making an Apple TV limited series. Uh, and there is a video posted uh, six days ago as we record this, about a week ago, of them doing like ballet stretches at the bar of a kitchen, just hanging out and having a great time. And it just made me really happy for them. So if you like Taryn or Paul Walter Hauser, just go check that out. That's all. I'm interested in that. But yeah, I think that like if you content. are on this podcast or listening, it's probably relevant to your interests. <laughs> I said, right. Kate, yeah, uh, sometimes I send Katie uh, Instagram photos of Taryn Edgerton. It happens sometimes. I mean, know? we have to. I'm going to drop my at. Okay. <laughs> send those to me as well. You can join the group, <laughs> Chris. Okay, let's kick off our Oscar flashback series, as promised, with Chicago. Uh, Chris, you were given the chance to choose any Oscar-adjacent movies you want, and you went directly to Chicago, um, which you described to me as basically being your Oscar origin story. So uh, why don't you just tell us what that story is? Yeah, I mean, it was a no-brainer when you (laughs) uh, posed the question, Um, just because it is sort of the, the pinnacle of a musical and a movie and a musical movie. Like, it executes on every single, on every aspect, on every cylinder. And I was at the perfect age where I was just beginning to find my, like, two true loves in this world, which are ruthless women and musicals. And it perfectly (laughs) combines the two in a way that was really expertly done. It was really the first year that I remember, because I was uh, born in 93, so I think it was was 10 or so, when it was doing its big Oscar campaign. I was really starting to, like, you know, you know, it was my first time really ever paying attention to what, you know, movies really were. And um, I, for some insane reason, my parents were like, yeah, you can, like, watch Chicago with us or whatever. <laughs> I have no you, idea what... You were a Broadway kid at that age already? Were you, like, had you already gone to see musicals live? Yeah, so I'm from Jersey, so I'd gone to see musicals live. I was famously the lead of my fourth grade play, So Far in the Crocodile. So I was bitten with the theater bug, and it was one of these things that was just developing. And to see such a a well-executed and deeply fun musical made by people who clearly understand and love musicals, that's a thing that I sort of am struggling with today with some of the musicals that are coming out of the pipeline, especially movie musicals. They all seem to be made by people who, like, hate musicals for some reason, and they want to make the music videos and not lean into the the theatricality of musicals. What are you thinking of? Name names. I'm thinking of the prompt. The Ryan Murphy occasion of musical theater and movie musicals is so deeply upsetting and unnerving to me. Agree. The prom was such an abomination in my eyes. We're getting dance sequences where we can't even see anybody's feet 
because we're, you know, we're cutting between a million different takes to make it feel like we're watching like a cool, again, cool is coming back, to make it seem mm-hmm. cooler than it is. Musicals are not cool. There's nothing cool <laughs> about musical theater. And that's something that I think Chicago, by sort of leaning into the theatricality and like the lingering shots of the dances and just sort of, and, and Catherine Zeta-Jones' amazing legs and her wide vibrato and just sort of like placing us in this space and living in it fully and not trying to make it cool or hip or edgy. It was, it was so good. And that's something that I keep finding with these sort of sepia toned, you know, like grayscale, like movie musicals that are just go from cut to cut that make you, they want you to sort of trick you into watching a musical. It's like, no, if I want to watch a musical, I want to watch a musical. <laughs> I don't need to be like tricked into it. Now it sounds like you're dissing Les Mis. Well, that's how so- oh, <laughs> I actually do love Les Mis though. That's actually, that, that's, I'm a Les Mis apologist as well. <laughs> that's, that's so funny that you said this. So I like promised you a hot take about Chicago and it's, and it's this Chris that I think this is the last great movie musical. I don't think we've had a great movie musical since this. And I like the Mamma Mia's, so I'm not here to like bury the Mamma Mia's, but like those don't, those aren't like, those are like fun karaoke movies, you know what I we're mean? Not They're counting, not... We're not counting Sing Street, I assume. No, that's not really a musical. That's like yeah, diegetic, know, I, you know what I mean? I get like, it. yeah, diegetic. I actually agree. I honestly would say one of the next closest would be Dream. I think Dreamgirls was a little bit mo- like was not appreciated for what it was in its time because it was like so expansive. It was is trying to do a lot, and it was. I think it was also it was also Rob Marshall, Rob Marshall um, and I think it was. Very good with some like pretty stellar performances and moments, but again, a little bit too long, a little bit too bloated. But I think that sort of, you know, that's maybe the next closest. I mean, I do like Les Mis, even though it is ultimately bad, but I like it because I love close-ups of people crying and screaming and singing. (laughs) So it's like, I obviously loved that. But I agree. I will. I think I have to agree that in terms of a movie musical, like we may have just fully peaked with Chicago from a casting standpoint, from an idea, from a, just a a choice standpoint in terms of, okay, we're going to give you like the nitty gritty, like, you know, just like theatrical naturalism is what I call it, like regular scenes of them in prison. And then we're going to transport you into this, you know, hyper theatrical, you know, vaudeville world that really only movies can sort of take you to that surreal place, you know, the, the power of movie magic. And that sort of juxtaposition was honestly as enough of a framing device for the whole entire thing. We didn't really have much else than that, but you don't really need much else than that because that in and of itself is enough for a movie. It's it's interesting because sorry really quickly I'm going to say this before Richard stops being friends with me that um, <laughs> it was uh, Bill Condon who, who did Dream Girls not Rob. Oh, it was Bill Condon. Sorry, not Rob. Uh, but they, you know, but they collaborated on this and also like what how, like Bill Condon and Rob Marshall never made anything after that was as good as Chicago is. Um, but yeah, I I loved watching this movie and like and as you say like the dance numbers like I just rewound the dance numbers and watched them again and again and again. It's so hard. Like so many musicals fail at at properly filming a dance number in a way that like just gives you that same feeling that you get watching them uh, on the stage. And, um, and, and it's funny what you say about like Chicago, not, uh, not being afraid to be, uh, you know, a a big, big dorky musical sort of thing, because um, I remember at the time there was some conversation because, you know, Rob Marshall and and Bill Conan's like big brainwave would be to make the musical numbers like Roxy's sort of imagination. And they're like, they felt like audiences were too cynical to go to a film in 2002 and just, you know, 
enjoy a musical. And so they needed to come up with some sort of premise to make like the musical numbers feel like it, not too jarringly out of, uh, out of tune with, with the movie that they're watching. And, um, and I remember at the time there was, that was sort of their like bid to, to make this a palatable musical. But, I, but like, I agree with you that like, actually the the effect is the opposite because then you get like Richard Gere with a bunch of showgirls in a courtroom it's just like it's it's, it's incredible stuff corny as hell I and loved it's so it. fantastic yeah. and it's so good and every single person and I hate to use you know Twitter speak but every single cast member understands the assignment and fully delivers like it's <laughs> like it is honestly a casting triumph to me across the board Queen Latifah John C. Riley, obviously Renee obviously Catherine Zeta-Jones obviously Richard Gere who I Katie your tweet was great that he might be the low-key you know best part of the movie like his performance is pitch perfect and people got on his case about not being able to sing well enough which I just feel like like maybe the intervening 15 years where we've seen like other people you know like Helen Bottom Carter and Winnie Todd like this just happened more (laughs) and like it just doesn't seem to matter that much when because he's just like laying on the charm and I do like remember him not getting nominated which was a scandal I also just think he's really like his singing is good i think and uh yeah you told me that katie that richard Gere was like maligned for not being a good singer a good enough singer in the film i don't remember that but i believe you and i mean like, he, he's just like not jerry orbach you know but that's okay well, who, like who, renee zellweger among us is jerry orbach <laughs> you know so. no, no. i yeah i've got to say especially thinking about how sort of real they sounded in the way that like now with movie musicals and just music today it's so overproduced and auto-tuned and whatnot like obviously there was definitely some fix it and post with the with Chicago, I'm sure, with the music, but they all sounded way more natural than I think we get these days in our movie musicals. And I do have to say, Richard's silence is absolutely terrible. I know I'm also scared. <laughs> I'm really scared. No, I'm just letting you guys talk. Um, no, I, I like the movie. I loved it when I first saw it. Um, I was telling you all over email that there is somewhere in someone's phone or Facebook somewhere from college a video of me and for so friends doing cell block tango in the middle of a, th- of a party, like just like, <laughs> but we like, weren't just like impromptu doing it. We like fully had like rehearsed. No, you like rehearsed. You had like beats nailed, you know, Cicero Lipschitz, you, you were. Oh book. yeah, we were, we were there. Um, so it was definitely really into it. I think that, I think the thing that makes this movie musical work so well with the, the Rob Marshall device of it's all in everyone's head is that that's what the show is about. The show is about mm-hmm. this delusion of fame and and just imagining what, you know, not for every character, obviously, but it works as a kind of like, you know, Roxy, Roxy's mind palace. is the, That's where everything is happening. I think that it's not an accident or not a coincidence that the most financially successful musical since it, if I have my numbers correct, I mean, well, okay, Mamma Mia, that's one thing. But I mean, like a, like a big kind of American production being the greatest showman, which is also about performance mm. and artifice and all that stuff. Mamma Mia is a different thing, and I think that those movies are successful less for the musical aspect and more for the ABBA aspect. But I think, you know, something I, I think Into the Woods is kind of an inert movie um, because there isn't that same, you know, that same device is not available to you. And he Marshall didn't try it. He tried it with Nine, which made sense because that's, again, what the show's about to some extent. But, like, that that musical is not as known. 
Um, and the casting was bad for that. That was yeah. not well cast <laughs> yeah. in the same way. Yeah. So it's just weird to watch Chicago and be like, oh, this perfected it. And then it never, it never happened again, really. You know, like it, it, it felt like the beginning when I was a theater student, when it came out in, in college and it, when it, it felt like the beginning of something huge. And there obviously have been a lot of successful movie musicals since. So maybe it did begin something, but it, nothing really has kind of hummed and worked in concert together the way that this movie does it it feels much rarer than it did then somehow Mm -hmm. right and uh, like it came off the back of um moulin rouge and that was uh, you know that's also a film that i love but that's presumably a coincidence like they came out a year apart so oh no no, not i didn't i didn't mean no i know you mean but it's funny that they came so close together when a lot of that similar like high theatricality is is yeah high theatricality and like red neon and like they're forever (laughs) connected in my brain and yeah it just felt like it felt like the beginning of a time and then it was the end of a time it was the beginning of nine which uh i guess rob marshall made memoirs of a geisha right after this it was there were some choices made rob marshall Um, desecrated into the woods yeah what you're saying chris about like uh, musicals that like chop up the dancing a lot i remember that being a criticism of chicago at the time i think the musicals that have come since then have lessened the effect of that but i I did think while i was watching the cell block tango like i want to see these women all lined up against these bars more like i feel like it is you know there's a lot where like cuss to catherine zeta jones's face and it allows her to like you know curl her lip you know those like famous fossey moves that are just like one tiny movement so there's a lot that benefits from that but i did see some of that like it's possible that chicago was the also the beginning of that trend which we all was the beginning of now. chopping it up which yeah. is like what's the point we want to see the da- we want to see the the dancing i was really thinking about um the the hungarian i mean that gorgeous ballet mm-hmm. scene is so it was just so i just think there's something so simple and effective like the movie i guess to to circle back like it wasn't trying to be four movies at once as, as richard said it really latched onto this one you know theatrical movie device of uh, let's you know blow up and absolutely go uh, gangbusters with Roxy's imagination for these dance numbers. And it was so effective and it was so great. And you're right that a lot of other movies like Into the Woods doesn't lend itself. We exist in that world. We're already in a make-believe world. And so that was a big disappointment for me as like a big Sondheim, you know, obsessive person that that didn't really work. But when you put it in such clear terms, it was never going to (laughs) be, it maybe never really stood the chance, at least adapted, you know, as plainly as it was to sort of be the next great movie musical, um, which is just a really interesting thing to think about how we may have peaked in 2003 and we didn't even know that we <laughs> peaked. I hate that. There's a really interesting facet of his success, which I th- I believe prior to an Alvin and the Chipmunk sequel, Chicago was the highest grossing movie to never be number one at the box office. It was never number, was it what? Yeah, it was never number one. <laughs> I love I love that you just invoked the squeakwool. Thank you so much. For that. <laughs> it might have been shipwrecked, Joanna. I don't know. Oh, okay. Fair right, now I'm now I'm going into box office mojo, which we all know is a curse of activity. Ooh, a I want to look into what we got here, which, which suggests a, a real organic word of mouth hit. You know, and <laughs> no, no, I'm, for Chicago, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, talking about the squeakwool, um, and the and that it it you know it cost forty five million dollars to make, which is like the equivalent of about sixty six now. Um, so not low budget by any means, but it was not, I, I don't know how, I don't, I wish I remembered better, like then how it was positioned as not only a box office smash, but a huge Oscar movie, 
but I really do feel like it went, it won best picture, you know, partly because of its incredible technical craft in it, but also because it just was one of those things that organically just kind of became a sensation without it being feel like it was being pushed into voters faces. It was, Mm -hmm. it was cool in a way, or at least zeitgeisty and fun to love that movie. It, yeah. it didn't feel like a chore. It didn't feel like vegetables. It didn't feel like it was imposed upon you. It just was like, oh, this really great movie musical that kind of cracked some sort of code also happened to make a ton of money without ever being a number one smash hit. It was playing the same Christmas as uh, Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. Oh, oh that's uh, why. And also, uh, Catch Me If You Can. Those were like the two that dominated that like that January. Before what a time to be alive. Comes. I know. I, yeah, I am. Um, Katie and I did a little like Harvey Weinstein uh, foraging. Um, never a fun activity. Um, before we started recording, Katie, can I can I do the lay of the land of this Oscar yeah, please. season? All right. So some big other contenders this year are The Pianist and uh, Gangs of New York. And apparently, according to like some articles that Katie and I read, that like Weinstein was going hard for Scorsese, Scorsese to get his first directing win. And so the narrative, the big narrative of that award season was Harvey Weinstein throwing Martin Scorsese in everyone's faces relentlessly. Um, and when the pianist started to pick up some steam part of the Weinstein tactic was to you know put the foot on the gas around you know talking about Roman Polanski and and why Roman Polanski is not a would not be an ideal person to celebrate at these Oscars so there was a Roman so there was a Harvey Weinstein generated uh overzealous push for Martin Scorsese uh, I don't even want to call it a smear, a, a truth telling about Roman Polanski and mm. all of that goes into the soup. And so the pianist and gangs of New York, were so, which were sort of two of the heavier contenders against Chicago, get injured by Harvey Weinstein's own machinations, but he winds up winning anyway because Chicago is also his movie. So yeah. he had a hand in four of the five best picture nominees, <laughs> yeah. which is insane. That's the grand soap opera of the 2003 uh, Oscars. I mean, there was so much. Like, this is also the year that everyone thinks Jack Nicholson or Daniel Day-Lewis is going to win for Gangs of New York or About Schmidt. Uh, and then Adrian Brody sneaks through and wins for The Pianist. Like, that was a twist. Um, you know, uh, Eminem did win Best Song. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> okay, this is an iconic Oscars. I mean, the Adrian Brody, you know, kiss, which yeah. is aged so poorly. Mm-hmm. And then the Eminem. That's a crazy. And then Catherine Zeta-Jones, she sung. Didn't she sing at the... Like eight months pregnant. I think I remember that pretty. I think this is when she wore the like big like crushed velvet red dress, and she was super pregnant. She's Uh, super pregnant. Yeah. Um, The I want to say about the Adrian Brady kiss. I have this vivid memory. I was in the spring of two thousand three. I was at Wesleyan as a freshman. I was taking an ethnic studies class, which was a great class to take, and I was just like not mentally prepared for as a college freshman. Like I did not have the framework to understand half of it. And I walk into class, and there are these other girls who are talking about how that kiss was like representative of how white men think black women are property. And I was like, okay, guys, you're reading too much into it. I didn't say anything. I thought this. I just want to say now they were totally right, and I was wrong. And I'm glad. And they're all Supreme Court justices. (laughs) They absolutely. Are. They were right they way before be. I was. They they saw things. I'm. Sh- I don't know if Adrian Brody has apologized, but he should. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe he will in this season of Succession. Can I ask a question? Because I, I I should have done more research. But is this the only Oscars where Pedro Almodovar and Eminem won an Oscar? Yeah, <laughs> in the same year. I mean, hopefully in the future we'll see that. that oh, and repeat. Miyazaki yeah, we'll, we'll and Michael Moore. Um. 
there's also the Renee Zellweger narrative. I was telling a friend of mine that I was watching Chicago and he's like, is that the one Renee won, won for? I was like, no, no, she won for Cold Mountain. But this was like a, she was nominated the previous year for Bridget Jones Diary. She was nominated this year for Chicago. And then I feel, you know, her Cold Mountain win very mu- felt very much like a, okay, we see you. Like, mm-hmm. here you go. And well, like, if I were to, you know, it's one of those moments where like, I'm not mad about Nicole Kidman winning for the hours, but like, if I were to pick one performance to give Renée Zellweger her Oscar for, it would be this in well, Chicago. Well, didn't it, didn't, like, there was a whole thing set off because Halle Berry won when nobody thought Halle Berry was supposed to win. Because then Nicole Kidman was supposed to win for Moulin Rouge, and then she didn't. And then, like, she won for The Hours, and Renee should have won for Chicago, and then she didn't. And then Renee wins for Cold Mountain. Ma- I remember, yeah. like, viscerally being obsessed with this when I was 10 years old. <laughs> and being, like, so And that is how you wound deeply- up where exactly where you are today. <laughs> exactly. And the thing is, I honestly, and this just pains me so much, I think Judy is actually sort of an abomination, and I love Renee, and I love Judy Garland, and I really just think of that Oscar as her Oscar for Chicago, because if Renee was supposed to win for a musical, it really should have been Chicago. She was, you know, the work at Judy, Miss. I mean, she's great. I'm happy she had her sort of comeback moment and her, you know, renaissance, if you will. But it just doesn't, you can't hold a candle to what she's doing in Judy with what she's doing in uh, Chicago. And I know they're very different movies and one's a biopic and schmaltzy and, you know, manipulatively evocative and whatnot. But what, but Chicago, she just simply nails every single line reading, every note. It's, it's honestly, I can barely speak about it. It's so good. She's really funny, (laughs) which I don't think you think as much. Like Chicago, the whole movie is really funny. Um, And you think of the um, They Both Reach for the Gun number where she's playing a marionette and she's like doing all this physical stuff, like flopping over on Richard Gere's knee. Like it's really, there's so much going on in every one of these numbers for her. Yeah, that's another one I rewatched. And I was like, uh, I watched it a couple times. One one time through, I just watched Christine Baranski. One time through, I like just watched Renee. Um... And then someone we haven't mentioned, I think, yet is John C. Riley, who mm-hmm. um, I love. Incredible. Th- I love the Mr. Cellophane number. I love oh, that yeah. number. I'm a big fan. So this is a Oscar nominee. Yeah, he, he, put yeah, them on. he did. Chris, I was going to say uh, about the Catherine Zeta-Jones thing. It's a, so you know, what, what, rewatching the movie is, and this is no shade to her. She's a great actor, but post Chicago. She hasn't. She didn't do a ton that was like very distinguished. Let's say you know mm-hmm. there was there have been great performances in in there, side effects, various other things. But you watch her in Chicago and you're like, oh, she just this was it. Like just this, this is why she became an actor is mm-hmm. to do this, win an Oscar for it, and then she would you know win a Tony for uh, Little Night Music, uh, which yeah. was an interesting choice. For a winner, um, but like you just this this movie is so fun to watch in her scenes because it's just like. Catherine Zeta Jones at purest CZJ, you know, form. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's she incredible. is just like throwing. I mean, that whole I can't I, I can't do it alone number. Like the hustle on display in that, and <laughs> you know, I I assume she did all her own dancing. Like I don't know if there's any like theories about like she body was, doubles in there. She was pregnant. Partially pregnant during the film. She, partially pregnant. She's pregnant during the <laughs> filming. And so when she started to show, there were some body doubles that they used mm-hmm. for like, um, and like, you know, like all like all the other girls are in like two piece Fosse things sure. and she's yes. wearing like a corset because she's, you know, starting to show and stuff like that. But like. Also because she's the star. She can wear whatever she wants. Just, no, no. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> she, she should have the like, you know, the hero costume. Absolutely. But, um, but 
there's one move she does and I can't do it alone, which is like when she sort of like collapses into like uh, on her knees in front of uh, Renee and she's like panting. I just yeah, she like slides across the table. Yes. Oh, yeah. my God. It's so good. Uh, yeah. She she was really built for this. I mean, I have a couple things to say about her performance. I mean, she was like a West End. I mean, she's a Welsh. Like, she was a musical theater actress. Like, she was Peggy Sawyer in 42nd Street. Like, she was literally built to do this. That's like, and specifically, this is her, like, oeuvre of musical theater. The reason why she was, like, honestly not good in uh, A Little Night Music, for which she won the Tony, which, like, I'm not mad about, her voice isn't built to sing Sondheim. Her voice is built to sing Candor and Ebb. Her wide vibrato, her belt, it's so... It's it's so old school, you know, cabaret, Chicago, like Broadway, let's put on a show. It's not like sort of, you know, more nuanced and and smaller in a way that would have made more sense for Desiree Armfeld, who she played in A Little Night Music, that like after watching Chicago, it made so much sense why like she didn't really work in the Sondheim universe. And yet she is pitch perfect, like Eliza Minnelli type in a Candor and Ebb you know, musical. So I just like, I totally agree, Richard, that she like, you know, her like, ah, like she's got like that whole thing. <laughs> like, that's just like how she was the whole time. And it, like, it's so perfect for it's, it so delivers on who Velma Kelly is and her skill set in a way that other material, though I will say I did, I did love Intolerable Cruelty. I saw that when I was like, that is a good like, that was underrated fun. movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is a good underrated movie. Um, but she hasn't had, I mean, she should do another musical again. She needs to do, like, another sort of old-school, like, sort of brassy, you know, show. That's what what she's built for. And she's also built to, you know, sell homeware and, you know, home goods, which is great, too. We love CZJ. Oh, yeah. I'm just poking (laughs) around the Casa Zeta-Jones site, and I'm really—I kind of want to get the, like, eyeliner and mascara, so I get the little traveling uh, cosmetics case that says Casa Zeta-Jones. I just feel like I need to show my support. Chris, did you just propose— kind of accidentally Catherine Zeta-Jones in a Hello Dolly movie? <laughs> I would yes. be way... The quickness with which I would give all of my money to see that, and I'm sorry, Bette Midler, the, great, she had it on. Like, let's let's throw her into Hello Dolly. A hat as wide as she is tall. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, just uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones just eating beets for 10 minutes. Like, I would cry. <laughs> it would be... Absolutely incredible. But it, it, it did feel like there was some sort of like alchemy specifically with her where it's like, yeah, this was sort of what she was built to do. And she was so comfortable in that space in a way that like maybe Richard Gere wasn't as much. And, you know, John C. Riley, you know, we see like range like that was definitely like not what he's typically known to do. I also want to say I remember being really confused when I was 10. I was like, why is Queen Latifah nominated for how could she also be nominated for Best Supporting Actress alongside Catherine Zeta-Jones? She does like half as much. And while that is true, she does a fantastic job. Like She She's totally so does. good. She's great. She's so good. I mean, um, she and John C. Riley, like, they are kind of in the movie, then they have their one big number, and they nail it. And yeah. you're like, okay, yeah, you have to have a nomination. That's all we can do. I'm sad that they cut Class, which is the duet from the musical um, between Catherine Zeta-Jones, Belma Kelly, and Mama Morton. But it doesn't really, like, push the narrative ahead. But they actually do record that, and I think they play it over the credits. Um, they're recording yeah. of Class, which I would definitely recommend people see. And I guess one thing I also will say is, this is one of those rare occasions, I would say, if we're going to go all in on Chicago, which I'm so excited that we're going all in on Chicago, <laughs> where the, the movie is better than the stage play. And that doesn't actually often happen. And I think that's something that, that like, in translation, uh, 
it's usually, you know, the play is better than the movie. And I'm actually curious to see, I'm kind of excited to see In the Heights because I think this is one of those, this might be a, from what I'm hearing, it might have sort of the same energy or the same potential to sort of expand and eclipse what a stage production of that show can do in a way that, like, I'm sorry, I'm not necessarily convinced uh, Dear Evan Hansen will do, but, you know, let's not (laughs) go too far in the future. But I would say that, yeah, the movie is better than the play. (laughs) You may have read that sentiment about In the Heights in my review, Chris, because I totally agree. Um, Yay! I do read. (laughs) I like the stage show In the Heights, but, like, the movie, it's like, oh, this is maybe where this belonged. And I think that what Marshall does so brilliantly with Chicago is, like, he makes the case that this is where Chicago belongs. It, mm-hmm. it belongs in that land of, you know, fantasy and sort of um, whatever is existing in Roxy's head can exist on, on on film. You can do that on stage. The show has been running for what like 10,000 performances in its yeah. revival. So like clearly it works to some extent, but that's more about stunt casting and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's exciting Erica to see. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, Dear Evan Hansen, yeah, I mean, we'll be, I'll, I'll be curious. I, I don't, that doesn't feel as like, maybe germane to like a movie as as Chicago does or in the heights actually turns out to be. I also feel like what's in what's interesting about Chicago is like is it like we all we all liked it when we saw it the first time. We all really loved this rewatch. It's not like it's aged poorly at all. But it also is a movie that isn't like hasn't been as sticky as even Moulin Rouge, like in the mm-hmm. you know, people don't rewatch Chicago, I think the way that they should be rewatching Chicago. I think it's just too popular, right? Like, you don't feel like you need to, like, rescue it being, and, like, the way you do with Moulin Rouge. Like, it, it won Best Picture, it's good. Like, you don't feel like you have to, like... Maybe, but, like, it. I feel like people talk about, I don't know, like, Titanic, one of the most popular movies of all time, like, more than they talk Are about Are you saying that's Chicago. a problem? It, it no, ma'am. No, ma'am. So, <laughs> Chicago is so slick. It, it, it nails just about everything, I think. Yeah. And so it doesn't... You know, you, you like to love the imperfect thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I don't think I'd rewatch this movie in at 15 years, maybe. Yeah, yeah, same. I had listened to the soundtrack a lot, though. Like, I oh. realized I, how much I had listened to it in college. Which, like, so, like, all the stuff that came between songs, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't remember this at all. Same, same. I was like, a lot of this movie feels fresh, but every single note of every single song, I'm very, very aware of. Yeah. Um, the well, the one thing I want to say as our as your uh, resident TikTok correspondent uh, is that uh, there was uh, like some Fosse trends going around, and one of the ones uh, that was happening, I don't know, like last month, I think, was people doing the hot honey rag, which is really fun. Uh, I was so. about to say the hot honey rag should be as big of like a, a gay cultural touchstone. <laughs> as the absent fairy from Moulin Rouge as yes. you know it i agree that it it like it 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 should be sort of bigger than it is just because but i do think that like because it really sort of delivers on you know every level that it doesn't yeah it doesn't feel the need to be sort of you know rescued or like well actually i'm interesting because i have this really unpopular opinion that chicago <laughs> is good like that's no, no one can really say that cuz like yeah we said it was good it is good like it's one of those things but that i will say Catherine and Renee you know, because they don't actually do that much together in the movie. That's something that also, like, sort of, I remembered sort of incorrectly, where I was like, oh, they're always, you know, Velma and Roxy are always, you know, palling around together. It's like, actually, not really. They have only have, like, a couple scenes. And their final scene into Hot Honey Rag, I think, is just really, that's such an amazing closer. And it's something that you don't really see, you know, it's not a, you know, a big one day more reprise or, you know, or, you know, a big production number with every single person. It's just two, you know, 
not middle age, but, you know, women of a certain age just dancing their face off um, in such a joyous way. And it's like, ah, that should be a bigger deal, I think. It was so good. I it think, was like, it gave me so much life. I, I think Casa Zeta-Jones sells a hot honey rag. <laughs> they, they, they also, catch guys, away, right? guys, this podcast is where I'm learning about the existence of something called Casa Zeta-Jones. I was not aware. Oh, oh Joanne, so. I'm so excited for you. Uh, yes. Absolutely. The rabbit hole. And honestly, Catherine Zeta-Jones' promotion for Casa Zeta-Jones is even maybe better than any of the products for Casa Zeta-Jones. So you, you, you have a fun night on the I think she's the only Oscar winner who sells her own uh, loungewear, uh, cosmetics, and coffee all in one, under one roof. White no, Eminem coffee. does too. <laughs> <laughs> and Pedro Moldovar yeah. too? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, they teamed up actually. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're going to move into the interviews on this episode. And uh, first up is me uh, talking to Kathleen Turner, who I was like mildly terrified to speak to because she's been such an icon for so long. She and I share a birthday, which we got into at the end. It's not on the episode, but, you know, Gemini power. Um, And she's on the third and final season of The Kaminsky Method, which is a show that I had not previously watched, full disclosure. Um, But she showed up in the second season as the ex-wife of Michael Douglas's character. And then she has a significant role in this season as she uh, moves to L.A. and the two of them kind of uh, grapple with their daughter's upcoming wedding. And if you were alive in the 80s, you will very well remember them as a duo from Romancing the Stone as well as um, War of the Roses. So, you know, they have this chemistry that has lasted for decades. Like, they remain friends. She talks about how they've stayed in touch over the years. I also asked her who else she's stayed in touch with over the years, and she brought up John Waters. Um, And you'll want to hear about her adventures with John Waters in Provincetown. It's exactly as fun as it seems. Um, So I had a great time talking to her, and um, let's listen to that conversation. I hear they've got you busy today. Well, a little bit, but, you know, it's really, on the other hand, it's, it's absolutely marvelous because I'm in quarantine in Canada and they are so strict. I am not allowed to leave my apartment. I am not allowed to walk on the street. I am not allowed to have any, anyone in. So, you know, it's getting pretty tough right now. So, what else? Huh? <laughs> what are you in Canada for? Are you working? Yeah, I'm doing a little indie film called The Swearing Jar. That's great. I'm glad that you get to be back on set. Well, under the COVID protocols, I mean, I I learned a lot doing the Kaminsky method that, you know, it was really, really strict. You're tested every day, which is fine. But, you know, except for the time that you're actually on set rehearsing or shooting, you have to be separate rooms, separate places, you know, we had a woman with a six foot stick who walks around and says, you're too, you're too close. <laughs> you know, it was really, really intense and lonely. I mean, you couldn't have lunch with other people. You know, you couldn't sit and, you know, talk, chat to them in between takes. It was kind of, it was kind of lonely, but not as bad as this. Yeah. Um, I wondered how shooting that worked with, uh, you know, theater shutting down because you have been doing your one woman show. And I assume that it stopped when when COVID started. So being able to go back on the set and going back to work might have come as some kind of relief. Oh, absolutely. But oh, uh, yeah, no, I had all these bookings, you know, mm-hmm. through 2020 and uh, all of which had to be canceled. Yeah, I think I, I was really looking forward to the camaraderie. Uh, mm-hmm. And although... It's there. You can't really enjoy each other because you're you're put in separate rooms in between takes. Mm-hmm. You can't have lunch together or just shoot the breeze. You know, it was it was lovely to work and to work with these people, but 
there was none of the enjoyment of, you know, just hanging out together. We we couldn't mm-hmm. do that. Well, I wanted to ask about what your relationship with Michael Douglas has been like over the years. You've spoken highly of him in other interviews. It seemed clear that you had a rapport when you worked together in the 80s and that you continue to. Um, but have you guys kept in touch or was this kind of a reunion? No, we've kept in touch. I mean, Michael lives on the East Coast also, you know, mm-hmm. in the Hudson Valley up there. So when he comes or when he when he came down to New York for like a matinee or something, you know, we'd have lunch, um, uh, which was which was great to see him. But it's almost as though we just picked up immediately. I mean, there was like, mm-hmm. there never been all the years in between working together. We just fell into the rhythms, and yeah, you know, we just know each other too well. Hmm. So when he asked you to be on it, did he describe it? Did he pitch it to you as the War of the Roses couple? Because you said that <laughs> I did. I said, the War of the Roses continues. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, well, Chuck Lorre is the one who really pitched it to me. Although when I did when I did the second season, just that one scene, no, Michael called me about that. But mm. then um, to to do the whole season, um, Chuck Lorre called it and described the character and you know the what would the the, the arc of. Oh, what would go on? And I said, no, no, Jack, wait, wait. You're telling me that you're writing two adults who learn and change <laughs> for television? Anyway. Um, but I do love that they, you know, in the process of, of getting along together, they start to remember why they cared for each other. And, and I think that's really sweet. Yeah, and there's such a beautiful history to it too. Not just because you know we've seen you work together before, but that the, the, the characters establish themselves. That there's, as you get older, that these things that used to feel so important and drive you crazy just cease to matter. And, and I wondered if that's something that you find reflected in your own life too. That as you get older, these you know things from the past don't drive oh, you crazy as much yeah, as they used no, to. No, absolutely, absolutely. You know, as something happens and you just go, in the scope of things, no biggie. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that as you get older, you learn more tolerance, and uh, and you don't think take things as personally. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're younger, everything is about you, Mm. and this is no longer necessarily true. And I I rather enjoy that. Um, have, do you have people that you've been in touch with that you've worked with, and like like Michael Douglas that you've maintained those friendships? Is there is there kind of a a way that you get to reflect on your own career by being in touch with people to that degree, or, or or is he kind of unique in terms of maintaining a friendship over the decades? No, he's not. I mean, I saw Steve Martin uh, not long ago for, well, I guess it was a year ago, Thanksgiving, actually. I, we have to just lose a year. You know? mm, yeah. The last time yeah. I saw him was, you just have to erase that year and, and go, I saw him on Thanksgiving. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, John Waters is a great friend. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. We are in touch a lot. I'm going to go do his camp. <laughs> What's his camp? It's John Waters camp. Oh my god! September. Uh, I guess I'm. Yeah, I guess I'm going to find out. Anyway, <laughs> you know, John says you have to come. You have to do it. You go okay. Uh, <laughs> you can't. You can't see me, but I have the poster he designed for the New York Film Festival right over my shoulder oh, right yes, now. With uh, very proud of that. 
Oh, it's so good. It's like, it's like, it was the funniest thing. I had to have it. Yeah. He, he was, he showed me that, um, last summer, I guess what I did was I, I was, I found I was going a little crazy in New York. And mm. so I ran away to Provincetown for a few mm. weeks and cause I have good friends there. And one of them being John, of course, who is the king mm. of Provincetown. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we got to see each other and have dinner together several times. And he showed me the poster then. Uh, he was very pleased. Yes. What's it like to go out with John Waters in Provincetown? You must have oh, wow. every door opened for you. <laughs> wow. No, no. It's, oh, you know, Mr. Waters, Mr. Waters, uh, John, John, John. Uh, he can walk into any place. You know, like we went to this one restaurant and he, he wasn't wild about where the table was. And so and he's very, very polite, very easygoing, you know, and he just says, you know, I don't really love this table. No problem, Mr. Waters. <laughs> <laughs> and he can't ever go incognito. I mean, I guess if he didn't have his mustache, he would, but he, he-, he wouldn't want to, Katie. He wouldn't yeah. <laughs> want to. <laughs> and why would, if you're John Waters, I suppose, I mean, I, I don't, I think you've said that you go, you can go incognito until you speak, which maybe that's a, that's a power, but, uh, you know, walking into a room like that must feel pretty powerful too. Oh, well, it depends. You know, so many things depend on if anyone knows you're there or expects you to be there. Mm-hmm. If they don't, then they kind of go, you know, you look a lot like Kathleen Turner, and they mm-hmm. and then they tiptoe off, you know, and you go, uh huh, I do. <laughs> um, How, how's it been the past year with masks, though? And you know, there's a level of anonymity to that that I think everyone got back. You know, it's a funny thing. I live, I live down in. Uh, downtown in Tribeca in Manhattan mm-hmm. and uh, neighborhoods like that created, you know, build a kind of protective barrier, you know, so that like I was in the local market standing in line waiting to, to check out. And this person ahead of me said, you know, I hear Kathleen Turner lives around here. And then, <laughs> and the checkout woman who I know very well said, no, I've never seen her. I go, yes, yes. <laughs> so you have you have a confederate working with you to yeah. uh, go about your business. Yeah, they're really good. I, I think people are so kind. I do. So you've got, I mean, at this point, theater should be returning soon. I think nobody knows quite for sure what's going to happen. But what are, are you planning to just get back on stage as soon as you can? Are you Lord, missing yes. theater desperately at this point? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, first of all, I'm going to pick up. I've still got dates in November for my cabaret, for my show. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Well, I had all bookings all year, but there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Never mind. Um, but, you know, the problem with theater, God, I I love it so much and, and so many people miss it so badly. But the thing is that you can't operate a theater on one quarter occupancy. Oh, yeah. Especially in New York. It takes a full house to pay the production and we're not there yet you know? mm-hmm. so even when I talk to friends who are producers and Broadway producers um, you know the city is saying September and my friends are going I doubt it mm. so that's a real a real shame we, you know this is a real life you know this is really screwed with everybody's lives mm-hmm. and um we can't ignore it. We can't, you know, just discard it. We have to deal with it, but uh, that's not easy. 
But I guess with a one-woman show, you've at least got a little bit less infrastructure. Like you could return yeah. to the stage. You know, you'd have to have an orchestra. Or, you know, the well, I have, like, I have three Broadway musicians. Show. I have mm-hmm. uh, piano and bass and guitar, and they're wonderful guys. And uh, you know, when 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 we know we can do the show again, be it November or whatever, you know, we'll throw together some rehearsals and head out. At this point, do you prefer being on stage to being in front of the camera? Do you embrace being able to do both? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Always. Always. There's something about stages. I I enjoy camera work. I enjoy what I call, when I tell my students, uh, dancing with the camera. Hmm. But it's it's very small. I mean, I can can play with 800 people in the theater, you know, Mm -hmm. where where I, you know, I'm just playing to a couple of cameras really uh, on set and two or three actors. Uh, again, it's wonderful to, to be able to be so exact, to know exactly, you know, where, where the eyes are because the camera directs the watcher. Mm-hmm. On stage, I direct what they watch. I direct, mm-hmm. you know, where the attention goes. So I suppose, and just, I think I've just confessed that I have a power trip now. <laughs> <laughs> but you have the power when you're in front of the camera too. Like you were saying, like you can, you uh-huh. can, you know, the director is in charge to some degree. And I think you've talked about, you know, having opinions on where, you know, where the camera should be, how to be photographed. Like there, there's a different kind of power on the camera, right? Yeah. 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 Well, you, there are so many more people involved in the choices in camera uh, mm-hmm. and on stage. I mean, on stage, for example, you'll have, You'll work with the lighting designer, the wardrobe woman, the, you know, the stage manager, the director, uh, the set designer. But once you start, once that curtain goes up, they're they're not there. Mm-hmm. But they are always there when you're doing camera. They're always circling and and you know being part of it. There's this lovely tone of sadness to this season of Kaminsky Method in particular. I think that I think you wouldn't have associated with a television comedy even 10 years ago. You know, it's about. When Chuck called me and said that, you know, he wanted me to play this role and he described how, you know, she would come back for the daughter, for the daughter's wedding. And so they would, you know, Sandy and her and Roz would have be forced to, to deal with each other, to be around each other a lot and all this stuff. And what they do is they start to discover again, why, they were attracted to each other, what they liked about it, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. So it's really sweet. And I said, no, Chuck, wait, hold it. You're telling me that you are writing adults in television who learn and change. Mm-hmm. And, and who are attractive to each other, you know, like the idea of them getting back together is very much on the table throughout that whole season. Oh, I don't think so. Don't think <laughs> it's so. definitely teased. The idea that like, I think, you know, you say to him, like, yeah, I never got over yeah. you and then tell him you're fucking with him. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, at one point, yeah, I guess in the dinner, in this dinner scene, you know, Sarah, uh, the daughter, mm-hmm. Sarah Baker says, you know, I love this. Uh, you're like an old married couple. And we were like, what? No, we're not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just, no, they're not. They're not. Um, but they, what they do is, you know, you can see the years they were together. You can, like, you can see yes. with Michael and me, the, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the easiness and the, you, you, you know, you jump right to knowing them again. Yeah. 
No, and it, it it adds so much to that story between you. And you know, you know, I went and watched War of the Roses this morning, and just watching the two of them back to back, it's it's such a pleasure. It's like a it's like two chapters of the same story, really. Well, that's what I said at first. I said, yeah, I, I know this is War of the Roses goes on, but yeah, um, yeah. Uh, if they hadn't died on that chandelier, maybe this is where they would have wound up. Uh, well, I I don't know. I think, I think Roz and Sandy are nicer. You know, I think so too. They're much more tolerant of each other than than uh, in War of the Roses, but then they're older, you know. Yeah, and that has yeah. a lot to do with it. You've done more television than film over the last couple of years, and obviously you've been very busy on stage too. Is there are there better things in television out there that are coming to you? Is there something about yeah. the way things are being written that's better on TV well, now? I I think so. I think that there's a lot more less formulaic. Um, less predictable. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, honestly, I, I, I didn't even bother with TV for years because, other than the news because mm-hmm. I just thought it was just, if I can tell you the next line before they say it, it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Is it getting better for women in that way, do you think? I think the, you know, the reputation for so long was that, you know, like there weren't good roles for women anywhere. And then I think in the last, you know, 15 years, like Glenn Close having a TV series, like things are improving in that way. Kaminsky Method honestly feels like a step in that direction. Do do you see progress happening there? Yes. I think that they're writing better for women. I mean, the reason that I always knew I would, I would go into theater full time was because of the roles, because they're better. They're just, mm-hmm. I mean, if you've got Martha or Mother Courage or yeah. know, what the hell do you want to hear a, <laughs> a sitcom for? Um, yeah. But uh, but that is changing. That is changing. They are writing more interesting roles uh, for women. Uh, and that's a shift, I think, in the whole dynamic, you know, hopefully that's that's coming to pass is that you know, the, the automatic dismissal of women, mm-hmm. the automatic assumption that we don't attract the same. Well, I mean, the, the truth is that in, in film and stuff for years, they said, you know, that men sold more tickets than women and everything. Mm-hmm. And so they would focus on the men's roles instead of women. Well, that's changing. That's, changing. Yeah. I think that, but this, this smug kind of assumption that, that uh, people are more interested in the men than the women is changing. And then also, I mean, you look at Body Heat, like, you know, the one, your role in Body Heat is why that movie appeals to people. Like, it's not like it's just going to be sold to men. Even then, it wasn't true. Uh, that was that was really incredible to, to walk out the gate with a starring role like that, you know? Yeah. Um, it also, I think, saved me from all the Me Too stuff in the fact that I, I wasn't, begging for roles i wasn't uh you know pleading with uh powers that be to to use my talents i you know i didn't need to having started mm-hmm. with, as a star uh, i didn't need to go through all that nonsense even I though people oh even though your beauty was such a selling point it was you you had the power to kind of to hold you your know, own i'll never forget when uh once we you know we got through the whole casting problem uh, process at and approval from all the suits and all that stuff. And finally, you know, we're locked in. Bill and I are doing it. And and Larry Kazan said, by the way, how old are you? I said, I'm 25. I'm going to be 26 when we start filming. No, no, you're not. You're 30 <laughs> at least. I go, okay. 
Because <laughs> the idea of a 25-year-old having that kind of power was unacceptable. Mm. That doesn't seem any different now, honestly. I think young women still get uh, discounted if they're, if they're powerful at that age, or at least they're scarier. Probably. I think people, uh, I think people have been scared of me their whole lives. <laughs> do, you, do you enjoy that? Not really. Not really. <laughs> but I mean, I want to say, oh, come on, get off it, you know. <laughs> well, it seems like if they, you know, once people get to know you, obviously you're building these long lasting friendships that the, um, you know, the trust builds pretty quickly. Oh, uh, yes. When they know me, they love me. <laughs> well, you've got that line in convincing method to know you is to divorce you, which yes, is I know. Uh, I really good. I love that line. There's I, this, this. I love that. I love that. You know, <laughs> why didn't you remarry? Well, you really want to know the truth. <laughs> You know, I, I, I never stopped loving you, really. No, you asshole. <laughs> it does seem like you need to have known someone a long time to be able to treat them that way and to, to make that part of your dynamic. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And we have. Okay, now for our second interview, our colleague Hillary Busis is talking to Renee Elise Goldsberry, who is one of the four stars of the Peacock series Girls 5 Eva. She's also, of course, a Tony winner for her role in Hamilton. And uh, she talks to Hillary about how she really embraced doing something as completely silly as playing this character, Wiki, who is a uh, huge diva who also, uh, not quite a heart of gold, but is kind of learning how to be a human being over the course of the series while also uh, singing really silly songs and uh, tending to her clear piano named Ghislaine which uh, she's refusing to change the name of. Uh, so let's listen to Hillary's conversation with Renee Elise Goldsberry. Okay, Renee, thank you so much for Zooming with me to talk about Girls 5 Ever, a show that I absolutely loved. Oh, I'm uh, glad you loved it. Yeah, um, I just, it's so funny. It's so, like, life-affirming. Um, it's all of these things at once. And, uh, yeah, so... For the uninitiated, uh, Girls 5 Ever is the story of this uh, sort of one-hit wonder girl group from the late 90s, early aughts who reunite in the present day uh, to try to get one more shot at fame. Um, and uh, your character, Wiki, is, uh, what is she, the fierce one is what she's known as? <laughs> she definitely thinks so. Yeah, so she's sort of the the diva, the outspoken, uh, sort of larger-than-life member. Um and yeah, the show has uh, scenes set in the present, but also a lot of flashbacks to the like TRL era. Um, so I wanted to start out by asking, uh, in that time, like 99, 2000, what were you up to? Uh, what was your turn of the century like? I think I was on uh, Ally McBeal. It was a wonderful show on Fox produced by David E. Kelly. So I was singing. A very iconic uh, show of that era too. Absolutely. And I was singing um, Backup on that show for everybody that came on there from Vonda Shepard to every Barry White, Al Green, any superstar. And I, uh, I was just trying to get a record deal, honestly. Um, and so, uh, that, that Ally McBeal was paying my bills and I was in the backyard of my best friend in a studio garage, writing and producing music, trying to get into Lilith Fair. <laughs> oh, wow. So you weren't going the theater route at the time. You were also doing the music thing more more specifically, yeah. 
I had, I, I tried, I, I was throwing a lot of things against the wall, as they say. One of them was actually a girl group in the 90s. I, I tried, I was just doing all kinds of stuff. I was auditioning for things. I was writing music, trying to get a record deal. I had a band. I was playing in the clubs in the LA area and I was singing uh, on Ally McBeal and I sang a lot of voiceover work for different movies or films or pretty much any any way to pay the bills while I was trying to figure out how to get some traction in my own career. Wait, I want to talk about the show, but I also feel like I need to know more about your girl group. What, one of the things I threw against the wall was just uh, agreeing to be a part of a girl group that was trying to get signed to a record label. We were We were not successful, but we were Fabulous. <laughs> what was it? What was it called? I don't remember the, what our name was. Actually, I don't remember. That's so crazy. I, I'll have to call a friend to find out what our name was. I just know that we were all really, we could all really sing. That was our <laughs> that was our big deal. We were not we were not you know trying to just look good. We could all really sing, and we decided that we were going to come together, and uh, you know make it happen. Um, as a foursome, it didn't work out. But um, but yeah, I was I was throwing a lot against the wall, waiting to see what was going to happen. I had I had start and then I started an independent film called All About You, and all of the ideas I had of everything else went out the window because I I, I had an opportunity to act in a major way in a movie that I thought was really charming and sweet, and so um, all of the music that I was writing, I started writing it for that film. And then I decided, wow, now I'm not just a person in this town that's trying to get a record deal. I'm a person in this town that's trying to get a record deal and a movie made. <laughs> so not very ambitious. Not very ambitious. And, I, and let me tell you, I was not alone. The town is filled with people with big dreams, and I was one of them. So then did this material, when you read the script, kind of resonate with you for that reason? Absolutely. I, I, it resonated with me also because this is not the first time there's been a movie that touched on the fun of a boy band or a girl band. Um, I just think they're, it's just always the candy of any movie to me. It's, it's really, really funny. I remember the beginning of that movie, uh, Josie and the Pussycats that Rosario oh, Dawson right. is in. Um, my favorite part of the movie is in the beginning where that boy band <laughs> is at the top of their success, uh, you know, and then Do they, they die horribly. They, they die horribly, but, 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 <laughs> but just like the glimpse of that wor world in anything I've ever seen on television or film is so fascinating and funny to me. I thought when Meredith Scardino and Tina Fey called about this. I just thought, oh gosh, an entire series about my favorite thing to to fantasize about. Such a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it. Yeah, as as people who lived through it, yeah, like that era is so specific, like in the fashion and the music style and everything. And the show really nails all of that. Um, and something else that the show really nails is, I feel like you and Sarah Bareilles and Paula Pell and Busy Phillips, your co-stars, you have this really great chemistry. I mean, you feel like for people who do actually, you know, love working together and spending time together. Um, but you shot the show during the pandemic, right? We did. And, and you're absolutely right. The four of us are madly in love with each other. And, and, and then you can add on you know, all of the guest stars and, and recurring characters that came on that show, you know, the cameo appearances all the way down to, you know, Daniel Breaker and 
um, you know, and Reynolds and, and Will Chase, everybody that, you know, gosh, Ashley, I mean, the, the other girls in the group, we couldn't even, it was hard to even do a sweatshirt about the group because uh, we didn't want to leave anybody out from the first version of the group to our, our current version of the group. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's, uh, most, most people in this business are really wonderful and always happy to have a job, but in COVID more so than ever, we, mm-hmm. um, we had uh, this was a this was a a godsend in the middle of a pandemic to be able to work. We were all working from our homes, as you know, we still are. But um, if you know, if a studio was going to be as conscientious as they were to you know, and and to pay so much money to create a bubble so that we could create together, um, to be invited to that party was a gift. And so did it feel difficult at all to kind of form that bond, especially with your three main co-stars because of, you know, pandemic restrictions or anything because of not maybe being able to spend as much time together offset? I think to have endurance in this business, I'll actually quote Busy Phillips. You have to be able to generate goodwill. That's that's the way she says it. So mm-hmm. all all of us, Paula, Busy, Sarah, and I, have been around a long time. And uh, if, if there's no story about us lingering somewhere that would make Tina Fey not want to call us, <laughs> we um, we probably we probably have figured out how to generate goodwill. They're they're all three really wonderful human beings, extremely talented, extremely accomplished, but really wonderful human beings that would have been a joy to work with even if it was not a global pandemic. Um, from the moment we met, we were madly in love with each other and the show isn't shooting currently and we are still on text every single day celebrating every victory, you know, crying together through everything that happens, you know, you know, every challenge. We, we, uh, we, we will remain close. That's the beautiful thing about this industry I found, though, I I have these families that I'm in that are always there for you, like my Hamilton family or, I mean, all you have a text, a group text with each one. There's a Hamilton one and a... (laughs) In the world that we live in, don't you? We have so many group text families and, um, and they rally, you know, they rally for... For the for the members of the family, no matter what what they're doing, if if Jasmine Cephas Jones gets an Emmy nomination and a win, we are, we all feel like we just won. And if you know if if Lin Manuel Miranda has a new movie calling, coming out in the Heights, we 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 feel like even though we're not Anthony Ramos starring in the movie, we feel like we're in it. It's it's uh, that that's that's the way that um, so many people are in this business, and it and it and it helps tremendously, not only professionally but personally personally, to have those kinds of relationships always there for you. Mm. And that's a great thing about Wiki, too, is that she is this, uh, like I said, kind of larger than life character, but she's not a jerk. Like, she's not like, she's self-centered in like an entertaining way, but not in like an unpleasant way. Um, And so, yeah, I just wanted to talk to you more about kind of forming the character, like, yeah, how you approached her. I love that you just said that because it it really is a wonderful segue into talking about Wiki and the journey that she's on. People ask me a lot, what's the difference between you and this character? And there are some glaringly obvious differences, I hope. Um, Your house is not decorated in purple expensive. (laughs) And it's not sliding down a hill. Uh, I think I innately understood the value of allies. I'm always showing up 
you know, with a pretty tremendous learning curve in front of me, you know, no matter what I, I'm doing, I feel like I'm surrounded by, by people that know a, a lot more than I do. And so it's always strategically important for me to make good friends. So they help me out. Uh, Wiki didn't figure that out the first time. Mm-hmm. Wiki is that person that, that didn't get the memo. And she is, uh, she was always auditioning for her own stardom. She could not wait to break off. She was not trying to make friends and influence people. She was trying to be a star. She didn't realize that those two things were synonymous. And what she gets is a second chance to figure out how to be there for other people. She realizes, I need these women, and so I'm going to have to figure out how to see somebody other than myself. And it's hard for her because... Yeah, she has kind of come like becoming a real girl. She's trying to become a real girl, and I'm, I'm... I, I, it's important as an actor that no matter what character you play, you you find some way to have a rooting factor for the character. I, I think they wrote the rooting factor in for Wiki in the first episode where she starts singing about how destined she feels <laughs> to have been famous and how painful um, how painful life is with this gift of a voice if if it doesn't happen for her. I think everybody understands how cancerous a gift can be, unfulfilled, unaccomplished. Mm. I think everybody understands that. And so I think she gets a little leeway. I think she gets forgiven for for a lot of mistakes because we recognize that. And, and most importantly, she recognizes very early on that she is not a, she is not an island and uh, she needs to figure out how to, how to love other people. Was there a particular scene or song lyric or something that just you found it so difficult to get through without laughing? Because there must have been several of those. Did you ever watch the Carol Burnett show? You look too young mm. for that. Um, I, I watched it as a little girl, and my favorite part was when they would be laughing through lines. That mm. was our experience through the whole show. I can't imagine the crew enjoyed watching us laugh through our own lines because it just meant we were there longer every day. Um, I, I I think uh, I have an even greater appreciation watching the show for the lyrics of those songs. Dream Girlfriends is one of the songs we sang that was probably our, our favorite our favorite lyrics because they were just so obnoxiously um, irresponsible. <laughs> I also love a little, um, like a little snippet of a song that Sarah and I got to do a video clip on. If our if our man does cheat, we only get real mad at the other girl. It was her. Right. It was her fault only. <laughs> I mean, and those songs. Yeah, no, and those songs are so funny, but they also, I mean, the show is also making a like a pointed like like has a point by making those of like especially in that era of music like it was incredibly sexist like and women were placed in the position of like having to perpetuate these ideas and like really really like not even women teenagers teenage girls um and it's such a strange thing to look back at now and be like this was okay and mainstream at the time 
I didn't remember, honestly, the girl group I tried to be in in the 90s until uh, we did an episode of, uh, we did it, we did an appearance on Fallon a week, a week ago, and they asked me a question about it, and I was like, oh yeah, I was in a girl group. But the song, the single we were trying to, that I loved, I thought it was the greatest song ever. I knew it was a hit. If we had gotten signed, it would be a hit. Um, and it's called, Yes, You Can, Find You a Good Man, But When You Do, You Gotta Treat Him Right. Make sure your love is out of sight. That's That was the lyrics. And I don't know that I questioned them because the hook was just so fabulous. Um, if we look back at a lot of things that we love, we would be like, what were we doing to our subconsciouses? <laughs> and we still do it. We still do it. But it is. But at least maybe we're aware. Maybe, we're, maybe this helps us be a little bit more aware. Do you know what wiki is short for? <laughs> I've been wondering since I started watching the show. It seems like a nickname, but I don't know if it is. It is absolutely a nickname. I found out towards the end of the first season that Wiki, I believe, is the nickname of Meredith Scardino, our show's creator's father. Oh, it's just a fantastic nickname. It's one of those nicknames, I believe, that has is not based in anything. I think his name, I, I, I don't know what his name is, but it, like, it's, his name might be John. You know, it has nothing to do with Wiki. So she, she named her character. She named, I think father? she's That's just so recognized, funny. you know, a fantastic name. And she, because she grew up with it and she used it. And it's one of the rare times in my life where I had an opportunity to read a script and I thought, that's the greatest name I've ever seen. Wiki Roy. I wouldn't be surprised if her actual name is you know, Tamika or something, or, you know, Shawanda, like she has some name that you've heard a lot of times, but she is most definitely, I think, decided that Wiki Roy, because of the way her mouth looks when she says it. <laughs> and she definitely thought of it herself. I think she 100%, I've made this decision, no one told me this. I think she 100% <laughs> decided when she was looking in the mirror making sounds <laughs> that Wiki Roy was her name because of because she liked the way her mouth looked when she says it. <laughs> that is an entirely believable character character choice. <laughs> you remember what she said to Stephen Colbert when when he was going to write her a song. <laughs> she said, uh, "My mouth looks really good when it says, wow." <laughs> <laughs> she was right. <laughs> She's fantastic. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Our flashback series is continuing. Uh, we'll tweet about it too, but uh, next week we'll have Hillary Busis on talking about quiz show, just uh, going back further. Which in I've time never seen. The 90s. Man. Sorry. It is the reason that I know that the movie Marty won Best Picture, which you'll understand when you watch the movie. Um, so we'll talk about that. Please join us. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun doing these rewatches. Uh, you can find us on VanityFair.com. You can read uh, Richard's review of Cruella and A Quiet Place 2, as we discussed, uh, and find lots of other great stuff um, from Chris and Joanna and everyone else. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws. And Chris. At Christress. And you can always text us at subtext by going to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-746-3771. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the title of our Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee-style spinoff goes to Chris Murphy. Joop in the coop. <laughs> <laughs>